Hello, Looking Glass listeners. Welcome back to The Infinite Room, a little space in which Looking Glass imagines big things. I'm Casey Foster, Looking Glass Ensemble member, and I'm host for this episode of The Infinite Room, in which we're going to talk about one of my favorite things, puppets. Now, some of you may immediately think Sesame Street or Avenue Q or Kukla Fren and Ali. It's okay, I had to look that one up too. But really what we're talking about, for the most part, is the use of inanimate objects. Things made of wood or metal or plastic or anything, really. Banana peels, whatever. Things that are definitely not human to represent humans. Or occasionally animals. So at Looking Glass, for example, when we did The Steadfast Tin Soldier, we had lots of different versions of a little child. The first time you saw him, you just saw a huge head and hands as he played with a little tin soldier. Later, you saw him as a close-to-life-sized toddler wanting to go outside. In both cases, you saw the actors moving him about. Both babies, by the way, were created by one of our guests today, Blair Thomas of Blair Thomas and Company. In Mr. and Mrs. Pennyworth, there was a pig and a wolf both of whom encounter the human heroes of that story and tell fantastically detailed stories within stories, often involving shadow puppetry, which is another technique altogether, and one mastered by another of our guests, Sarah Fornesi from Manual Cinema. Well, I sat down with them for a chat about how and why all of this works so magically. Let's get started. Thank you, Blair and Sarah, for coming to the Infinite Room. I'm so excited to talk to you today and ask you these lovely questions. The first one being, what first drew you to this kind of work? Uh, right, the origin question. I grew up in a very small town where there wasn't even a movie theater, so there wasn't a lot going on. And I did chance on vacations to see some puppet shows. And I had in my mind some some things when I received a marionette as a gift when I was about 10 years old for my grandmother. And, um, and that started the whole affair. When I look back, I realized I had more poetry in my childhood than like I had thought because my grandfather, who was a doctor for Christmas and like other family gatherings would do this amazing puppet show he called Howdy Judy Time. Oh my and God. he had the whole setup, the whole like hand puppet setup with the lights inside, like made of wood and 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 everything. And that's incredible. It was, it was I loved it, and it was so violent. <laughs> you know, like Clarabelle always got her head bitten off by the like alligator. There was like an evil doctor with like a syringe that would spray the audience. We loved it, like cans of snakes, the whole nine yards. And and I, I really grew up. I loved the labyrinth. I loved uh, the Jim Henson Hour and the Storyteller. Like I I watched a lot of Jim Henson stuff that we had taped on VHSs, like off of the television. So uh, you know, and then I like went away and thought I was going to do many other things, like be a research scientist, be like a literature professor, and then in Chicago, kind of <laughs> found my way back to puppetry. And I remember I remember seeing a production of Cyrano actually that Red Moon did with court theater and mm -hmm. like the puppets were just astounding in that giant logs that fell out yeah. of the sky and like regiments of, of soldiers with like one person in the center, um, like puppeting all of them. Mm -hmm. And then actually Argonautica <laughs> at um, Looking Glass, uh, the baby puppet in that is like seared into my brain. And both of those shows, I think I saw in my first year of school. So like my very first year in Chicago, like back in like the early 2000s. Why do you think Chicago is a home for this kind of work? 
I have my thoughts on the matter, but I'd love to hear from both of you why why it's happening here and not in other places and other countries even. Um, what do you think? Yeah. Hmm. That's an interesting question because it's I, I think it um it, it's really uh uh in tandem with the rich theater community that's in Chicago mm-hmm. is my assessment. Yeah, I totally agree. Actually, like when we travel with manual cinema around the world, I feel like I get asked this question a lot. And I think I think it's actually like the ensemble tradition in Chicago mm-hmm. that comes out of, you know, companies like that are that are doing street theater like Steppenwolf and also physical theater companies like Looking Glass. Like there's kind of this ethos of coming together to make a thing and not having it be about people's individual roles, but being about the like creation through collaboration that I think is really conducive to puppetry. And also like the breakdown of disciplines. Like when I was, I remember like being in my twenties here and you could go to a house party and there'd be like an amazing like feminist burlesque dance and a puppet piece and like a piece of acrobatics and like the best like poetry performance you'd ever seen and like extremely experimental sound music, <laughs> like all in the same like apartment in the same night. Yeah. It's interesting to, to hear your perspective because you're, you're like definitely another generation for me. And when I came to Chicago in 85, it was, you know, Steppenwolf and Wisdom Bridge and, and um, you know, Looking Glass was still at college and, and I, uh, there, there was no puppetry in sight and uh and the in fact the the scene was very different in so many ways that house part you just described well, that wasn't going on at least <laughs> or i didn't know about it if it was anyway uh yeah it was kind of emerging in these very small ways and so there's really been in the past you know three or four decades a real change and there was uh, some amazing examples of work that came in with the international theater festival in the 80s and 90s uh, one of which was el comedians from barcelona that was my principal inspiration to um uh starting red moon uh was we did a workshop it was mind-blowing to me because we showed up for this three-hour workshop and and they started by saying at the end of this workshop we'll go out in the street and make our performance and i was like (laughs) uh i just met you (laughs) and they they said let's build some puppets here's the story and go in the alley and find some materials and so we're scrounging in the dumpster so we threw together these puppets and rehearsed this show and ran out in the street and performed it and i was just like my god that you can just do that you don't have to like plan and rehearse and read the script and and go over and over and over and there was that but it was also in a similar way it was that it linked in very well because it was sarah says this ensemble sensibility that was based on on musicians and actors and dancers and puppeteers working together and i think I do think that is, well, that is clearly unique about Chicago, and I think that is conducive to the kind of work that comes out of Chicago for for, for puppetry, um, for sure. Well, I'd also like to add in my theory, which you were kind of confirming as you talked, but I feel like puppetry happens when a puppeteer comes to the city and starts doing puppetry, and then more people see it and are interested and introduced to it. So in a way, Blair, I think that there's puppetry in Chicago because you started doing puppets whatever year you said you began. (laughs) But, you know, like my hometown, I remember in college, we spent an entire class. The professor was like, "This today we're going to learn about puppetry. And the whole class 
was laughing and scoffing at it. I was in this room too, you know, nobody had ever seen puppets before or had even heard of it in my hometown. Right. And so there is no puppet scene there. Maybe there is now, I'm not sure. But I think that when you have people that begin the work and and the more people that see it, the more they are interested in bringing inanimate objects to life. It's true because it's like if you try to explain to someone who hasn't seen contemporary puppetry what manual cinema is doing, they'll have they can't get it. There's no way. And if mm-hmm. they go into the room and the, and the like, the first fifteen minutes, their jaws are dropped. They can't imagine like what is going on in this theater, and it's incredible. So that it's just to the point of the the work just needs to get in front of audiences. And audiences who are who are curious will will be astounded, and the, and 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 it's this is why you know this is why the work that Mendelssohn makes is is just is just flying off the shelf in that way, right? It it, it can play in so many arenas. Um, but I also don't think Mendelssohn could have existed without Blair Thomas and Company, um, because Blair cast Julia and I um, and the Kite's Tale, and. <laughs> I think that was like the first time I really learned a lot of the like principles of like how to puppet. I think with uh, Red Moon too. I mean, it was just like you got your hands on every different kind of puppet. And and every time there was a new type of puppetry introduced, it was, you know, there's just so many different forms and it was incredible to learn them all. But how do you think it's possible that these inanimate objects can sometimes provoke such powerful emotions for the audience and for viewers. Why, why do you think that is? And actually, this is another Blair Thomas opportunity. I remember <laughs> when you set up for us to meet the performers from South Africa. Um, they were here with the William Kentridge show. Um, mm-hmm. And Handspring. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And I remember talking to one of the puppeteers. He was telling a story about um, the rehearsals and and spending like something like six or seven hours of rehearsal, like um, like a full day, just like getting the cup the puppet to pick up a cup. Um, it's just like a simple cup, oh, right. um, three foot right. tall puppet, <laughs> cups about six inches. Um, and puppet theater, I think the audience, even if they don't consciously know about it subconsciously can feel the effort and labor and attention that goes into the simple action of picking up a cup so when it happens on stage it is it's simple and direct yet extraordinary and gains like an extra weight and meaning um for an audience member to to experience that versus you know in a um, a play with humans, like it's very easy just to casually pick up a cup, put it down, throw it. Um, it's a gesture that can be empty um, because of its ease mm-hmm. um, versus like if a puppet right. does it, like it, you know, it has meaning in it because you can like feel the weight of the difficulty. For sure. Yeah. That story reveals that the, the nature of the puppet is ambiguous mm. And and that it, people are aware of that. You see the puppet, and it appears to be live, but you can see its materiality. And it's clearly a fabricated thing, and so you you are that that ambiguity is is extremely powerful because it's it's a it's a it's a vibrant material image that's that's moving in front of you, being demonstrated in front of you, and and it will make any human being look it means it's a kind of curiosity that can attract you know an animal as well and that kind of response is intellectually 
confusing for humans in 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 a fundamental way and that makes and that you know so then from there comes all the ideas and theories of the uncanny and the 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 uh, epistemology of the of the puppet itself and its 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 nature and uh and how it functions as a metaphor but it is an actual thing but it's 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 pretending to be something or it is you know there all these levels of things start to play out so the simple act of lifting up a cup is, as Sarah says, it's resonant. I also think it, it, it really cuts to the heart more. You know, the viewer is now asked to use more of their imagination and how they recall certain emotions. So they're able to connect more closely, I think, because they are drawing from even more personal experience yep. rather than an actor that's acting it they are putting their experience onto the puppet puppets. yeah th- that's an interesting thing because it brings up this 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 idea that when you're watching a performer do something you're you're understanding that the performer's ego presence like they actually get something out of being in front of the audience and having having being the conduit of the work but the puppet has doesn't care whether it's lying in a box or, or on center <laughs> stage it has no investment in anything the puppeteer does but the puppet which is the focus does not and so it there's a purity to that that the the actor will just lack and lots of people have written about that notion and that's a that's that's a powerful thing but it becomes a thing that allows the audience to be part of the maker of the work the puppet is not sad, although it looks like it's sad. And so it looks like it's sad because it functions more like a mirror. The, the, the seer, the viewer, sees sadness in the puppet, and, we're, and they're seeing sadness as they understand it. And so it's very much like their, their own creation of sadness, mm. so that, which is an, an act that happens in the theater. In general, the audience comes and, and they make the, the performance happening by by watching it and engaging with it but but it's at a different level with the puppet yeah we think a lot about that actually emmanuel cinema that that um space that is left um in the show for the audience especially because since working with shadow puppets often we're working without facial features um and we're also working without words so there is like that space that blair's talking about for the audience to project themselves and then conversely, the, the other part of that is that we are asking the audience to do work. Um, we are asking the audience to project themselves and connect the dots um, in a way that I think if we had more facial expressions or more language to guide them, um, it wouldn't be as necessary. So that is yeah. that's definitely a touchstone, especially because we tell like emotional stories with narrative. So we always have to come back to, um, you know, like, are these motifs strung together? Is this narrative working? Um, Like, is it rewarding and speaking back to the investment that we're at and the like sheer work that we're asking the audience to do? Um, Which means sometimes we cut fun stuff. Like I've written like, there's so many like car chases and and things like that (laughs) 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 that have not forwarded the story. (laughs) Much of the work you do is open-handed where there's no real effort to hide the mechanics. And, and sometimes that's different in certain shows I've seen of both of yours. What impact on the audience does this technique provoke? You know, you know, I see some of your shows where you're covered in black and others and manual cinema, you know, you originally started with your, 
performers and puppeteers behind the screen and you decided to put them in front of the screen mm -hmm. and this type of uh, showing the puppeteer why do you why do you choose to do that and what do you think what do you think this does for the audience showing the puppeteers kind of unlocked manual cinema for us because we we spend all of our time or at least i i spend all of my time in front of screens so like my phone screen and computer screens and additional monitors around my computer screen and the you know, so I'm con we're constantly saturated in all of this visual imagery that all has been designed by humans to have some kind of effect on you, whether it's an emotional effect, to get you to buy something, to get you to think or feel something, but it's all made to be feel very invisible and like super intuitive so that you like keep clicking and keep engaging with it and not think about the ways that it's manipulating you. And so it became very important to me when making manual cinema to think about, okay, we, we'll, we'll give the audience that like clean Western cinematic image that's telling a story. But at the same time, we're gonna show the humanness and the messiness and the constructedness of it, of the humans like actively working to make this imagery that's seeking to have an emotional effect on them. And then the audience can choose where they want their attention to go and how they want to engage with that image. Yeah, and so what you know, manual cinema does is is a, a, a very refined version of of a of a movement that that exists in contemporary puppetry today to reveal the puppeteer essentially, have them not hide in a booth or hide as a marionettist or whatever the technique is, so that we see the apparatus and we see the artifice while we see the magic at the same time. That combination of things, and that's a signature of puppeteers the exciting thing about that thing is that it's it's it liberated the puppet theater out of the puppet stage per se and it fell into the actor's stage in a sense that made uh, puppetry become a tool for a theater artist who had uh, a higher standard of of dramaturgy for work and to and to make work that's that's evening length work and and start to involve many different styles of puppetry in, in, in one context, rather than everything happening in the hand puppet stage or everything happening on the shadow puppet stage, that it's the theater space that, that's activated by many different things. And that doesn't necessarily mean that it has to be filled with different puppet tricks. Like this is one thing that a, a trap we, when I was at Red Moon, I felt we were in was like, we did a show and it's like, okay, make sure we have a hand puppet moment, a, a pop-up book, a shadow puppet thing, and then a giant puppet. And then we'll, you know, just <laughs> like we had tricks. You just like take any show and just like throw all those things at it. It's that the space has been liberated from the little proscenium stage is, is how I see it at, at large, at least. Um, you've all seen, we've all seen each other's work. And we all have maybe different approaches and style and technique. And what I'd really like to know is how you first come up with the idea. So this is kind of a long and perhaps heavy question, but how do you first get the idea? What is the first inspiration? And then what are the steps from there? How, how do you decide which kind of puppet or does the puppet come first and then the story? Or maybe it's all a little bit of both. But describe your process is, I guess, is I guess what I'm asking. Well, it also goes back to the fact that there's five manual cinema artistic directors. So we each pitch ideas and we pitch ideas to each other. And then, you know, I'll, I'll jump in um, on the project to various degrees in various ways. Um, we also 
our, you know, like half of our work comes from for hire. So people come to us and ask us to make things. So in those cases, it's like we get a prompt um, and then we figure out how to do it and, and invent new ways of, of, of puppeteering and of animating. I think for me to come up with ideas, it often has to do with like choreography and in the rehearsal room. And it generally comes from the like narrative need of the moment. Like I know in the structure of the story, like we need to have like a moment of high suspense here, or if we need to have a moment of release and thinking about ways that I can construct that through the, the ways that I'm like directing the actors or through the ways that I'm like choreographing or composing the shot. Um, you know, in terms of, uh, what my process is, it's, you know, I feel like this is kind of a weakness of my, um, my work is that I, I don't really have an identifiable process, um, uh, which is probably not entirely true, but it's a little opaque to me that I, I find inspiration in so many places. Uh, I find inspiration in existing pieces of music and writing uh, in, in, in the lives of other artists in, in the forms of the of puppetry, like just to learn about a certain style of puppetry, um, um, will uh, will make make me just start wanting to make a, a work around that. You know, um, the scrolling uh, puppet stage, the the cranky scroll, to me uh, is a form that just captured my imagination, and I made several little devices that in, in employed that and in the back of my mind i uh, i have this repository of, of of theatrical devices i would like to make and and they're just like sitting around waiting for uh, a a an excuse to to appear on the stage and so and then i that i'm and then likewise i have all these these content things i like i have all this music that I, that i'm inspired by i'd like to build something around and so and then sometimes they coalesce they come together and other times there's material that just haunts me like like um, Moby Dick is something that just haunts me and it's it's, it's always kind of in the back of yeah I'm sorry still. <laughs> wow <laughs> you are so obsessed it's just a, man it, and it kind of just it, it it's so interesting to, to some material like that or, um, where it just floats in, inside of me and, and what interests me about it it kind of dissolves further and further in, into the into the material itself like I don't really care about the narrative story of Ahab um, but I'm somehow interested in the ocean and the water and the sea so this is how my imagination plays upon me and then and then you know I try to organize some some of these things and and then you know then you just and then I just start to push all these things towards a work and uh, and then a small little sliver of of something will get realized out of the mass of things that I'm thinking about <laughs> I love that yeah to find inspiration in so many things that that seems very accurate and beautiful Casey, how, how, about, uh, <laughs> how about you come up with your stuff? Because you're so, uh, uh, like, prolific. I, and I feel like while being pregnant, I thought a lot, especially about um, the show you did where you did uh, pieces about the dreams that you'd been having and the, the experience you'd been having during pregnancy. And it's been actually, like, a delightful way for, like, me to, like, process it as I go through it is, like, remembering your art about it. Um, so I would love to hear about, like, how you come up with your ideas and, like, bring them to fruition. Well, I, I think it was 
it's similar to what you were saying, Blair, but, uh, and it's funny, a lot of the pieces that have puppets are puppets <laughs> that already exist, mainly from Blair. <laughs> uh, or Frank had some amazing puppets built through Red Moon shows and various, and I'll, I'll send him an email and be like, can I use the Atlas puppet? Or, you know, so I'll, I'll have uh, a puppet and a song and a story I want to tell, and then I'll, you know, push them all together. But um, I guess, you know, in general, with with most of the stuff I do, I feel like the song hmm. is the first inspiration. And then from there, it'll have a narrative that comes into my mind. And I think, okay, this one could use a puppet, or this one's more of a movement sequence, or both, or something like that. So I guess if I had to pick one but thing I, for inspiration, I, I, I wonder, music. Casey, you're, you're a a performer, an actor who has the capacity to hold the stage as an actor and all the techniques and work that requires. And then you're also someone who I've always regarded and, and respected for being able to then switch that attention towards the, the puppet as an object and have the puppet have it the focus and the and presence on the stage. And what is what is your experience of that? Because I think you do that very successfully and not a lot of people can do that. And so how do you see your own personal performing techniques in terms of that? Hmm. That's a good question. I don't know, <laughs> but I think, you know, one of the fundamentals that I've, I've been told over the years is focus. So focusing all of my intention and putting it into the puppet mm -hmm. and through the puppet. So I think this is, you know, something we all know. So I don't know, maybe, um, maybe just letting go completely of myself being seen. And it's so funny. It's like a weird thing to identify, but you can feel when mm -hmm. you're being present to somebody, right. Or when you're being present to a screen and then you can let go of that presence. And so I let go of myself being present and, Hmm. only have the puppet present i don't know if that makes sense but i guess it's like maybe a, a letting go completely without like i hope i don't look too weird when i get in this pose or you know i'm not sure yeah, yeah. yeah. I, rem I remember being in a production meeting um like a year ago year and a half ago and somebody referenced um a moment from the um tin soldier and they're like oh yeah like that this moment it was really like impactful to me um, and I, I had to say, I was like, well, Casey Foster is one of the best puppeteers, like in the whole city, you know, and in the country. So like they're, oh, you yeah, like we could, we could shoot for that. Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> so can you talk a little bit about what projects you're currently working on? How are you able to continue right now? And, uh, and what are those things? What should we look out for? Yeah. Well, let's see. We're in a moment now where this extraordinary thing happened where our lives, which every day were full to the brim of responsibilities and things we needed to do until we fell asleep and then woke up the next day to do it again and again and again. And someone said, stop. And we're all like, what? And we've all stopped. And so all the deadlines and things we were at are no longer applicable or they have to be changed in a way that we can't even conceive and and uh so there's a little bit of a shock to the system for sure for me this is my experience of just like ha huh, okay it wasn't like organizing an international puppet theater festival was just something i thought of one weekend and started to do it the <laughs> next you know it it was it, it's it was very it has a it's a very 
uh, intricate puzzle of collaborators and ideas and resources to make it happen. And all of a sudden, like, now I have, I'm shifting because we're in a situation where two principal things can't happen. One is audiences can't gather and international travel can't happen. I was like, well, that's sort of basically what I'm doing. I'm... <laughs> and so, uh, uh, and so <laughs> anyway, just to say, what am I doing? I don't know. Like I, I made a puppet out of a bunch of pieces of wood that were lying around a little crazy marionette, <laughs> rod marionette guy who's like, looks like a, a wood sprite. <laughs> How about you, Sarah? Are you able to, you're also, for those of you listening, Sarah is <laughs> intensely pregnant right now and she's due in a, like a week and a half. So um, this might be a whole different experience for you as well, but what, what are you able to do? Are you rushing to get work done before your baby comes? Yeah. And in, in true manual cinema fashion, I am doing work that's like pushing like right up against my due date. <laughs> and that's where the baby seems to understand the production schedule. Um, and it's not showing signs of coming early. So I'm, I'm very grateful. <laughs> We're finishing up some work on the first major motion picture that we've gotten to do uh, puppets for. We've done a lot of video work and collaborated with um, a lot of online video producers like the New York Times before, but we're working on the new Candyman movie that's coming out. So we're trying to wrap that up before the due date. And one thing that I've been really working on and just finished doing Zoom auditions actually, which was so joyous and like heart filling and wonderful to like connect with actors and like guide them through doing puppetry um, through Zoom is a show that we're doing for the Kennedy Center for next year that's an adaptation of two Mo Willems stories that I'm adapting and directing for us. Though, you know, we're kind of in this like Schrodinger's cat situation where we need to assume that everything for the fall and winter that is confirmed is going through at the same time while understanding it that none of it could very well go through. Uh, and I'm the person who does um, right. contracting and negotiation. So we've got five artistic directors in manual cinema, and we all take different admin roles. So under normal circumstances, I had this whole plan for like everything for the rest of 2020 to be locked and set before I had the baby. And like now that's like definitely all up in the air. But, you know, our priority is we're really trying to keep the company open, really trying to keep our people, like our staff employed. Uh, but it does seem like the future of, of theater, at least in the near term, feels a little unknowable. Oh, it's also our 10-year anniversary this year, which we had <laughs> we had big in Chicago plans oh. for. And now we've kind of, we're kind of going back to brainstorming and thinking about what we can do uh, to still celebrate it in the context of COVID-19. Well, uh, I'm currently trying to figure out how to make a circus show for Actors Gym, all virtual, but something that we just scratched the surface with in case this is inspiration to either of you. Uh, these Zoom boxes are very entertaining to have a puppet appear in. So um, you can think about that if you <laughs> go to many Zoom meetings or if you create any virtual material. It is very entertaining and the puppets have a lot of life on those tiny boxes. So. <laughs> Anywho, <laughs> well, I love you both so much. Gee whiz, <laughs> not what this was supposed to be about. Um, but I, I really, I just thank you so much for your time and your talents and all of the things that you do to make Chicago 
so full and vibrant and uh you're both incredible people as as people but also as artists so yes. I'm, I'm really glad i got to talk to you today and i'm glad yeah. that you joined us here <laughs> yeah. this is so much well, fun thank you for the invitation bye bye bye, bye everybody Each episode of The Infinite Room, we give a shout out to one of Looking Glass's many community partners. This time, though, we're going to steer you towards the partners with whom we'd shared today's conversation. If you don't yet know the work of Blair Thomas and Company or Manual Cinema, good golly, now's the time to check them out. They are seriously magicians and creators of wonder and amazement on a regular basis. If you don't believe me, go see for yourself. You can see super cool videos of everything we were just talking about on their websites. Go to BlairThomas.org and ManualCinema.com and drink it all in. We also want to give a shout out to one of our supporters who makes this and all our work at Looking Glass possible, longtime board member Abby Roth. Abby and her mom, Sandy, were sponsors of Mr. and Mrs. Pennyworth, and Abby has been a supporter of so many Looking Glass projects for many years now, and especially of our more experimental work. So all of us in the company are proud, honored, and grateful for her continued support. Thank you, Abby. And if you like what you heard today and are inspired to make a donation to Looking Glass, go on! I dare ya! You can do so at lookingglasstheater.org. And you should go there anyway just to see the vast array of online offerings we have for you until we can all gather together again to watch humans and or puppets. Our artistic director is Heidi Stillman. Our executive director is Rachel Fink. Audio engineer is Stephanie Senior. And our theme music is by Rick Sims. Please check out the Looking Glass website, lookingglasstheater.org, to find out about our next episode and other ways you can stay in touch with the Looking Glass family. Thanks again for listening. Talk to you next time, and in the meantime, stay healthy, strong, and powerful.